You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. What's been one of the more memorable client experiences or customer experiences you you have had? Okay, I got one. All right. Um, so this was from a long time ago. We went to Boston when I was like maybe 13 or 14. Okay. And so you remember you took all, uh, you took your whole company to Boston. Yeah. And it was the tail end of a trip that you and I were already on where we went to Europe and we picked up summer. Sure. Sure. Um, my sister from school, uh, she was in boarding school. So we pick her up in Spain we come back to Boston and we're in Boston for a few days with your whole team. And we go to the four seasons. I'd never been to the four seasons before. Yes, right on the commons. Yeah. And we pull in and as soon as we get out of the car, I mean, feet haven't even touched the cement. There's someone there waiting and they go, Mr. Smith, welcome back. And I was yeah. like, Whoa, <laughs> how do they know you? You know, and and for a second, I thought like, well, dad is traveling all the time. I guess he just comes here every day. No, obviously, I thought about it for two seconds. I'm like, he don't come to Boston every weekend. And right. even if he did, like, I don't you know him like that. Right. I go, wow, that's just a very intentional thing that they've done to uh, to have a good customer experience. And they say, welcome back, not welcome. Like, they know you've been here before. Right. So they have some, like, they've taken some time to to learn who you are. Um, and then we go up to the room and they had like, we had a kid's room and y'all had the adult's room and in the kid's room, they had like left candy, but it wasn't just candy. It was like hand constructed, like, yeah, it was, it was like artisan chocolate. And yeah. Things. It was, it was really impressive and we thought it was the coolest thing in the world. So. It was, yeah. I'll give you another, uh, sort of hospitality experience along those lines. I was, uh, I was in South Africa with some friends of mine and we, we were going to go on safari. And so at this safari lodge, obviously, you know, it's over the top and you, you know, you get there and they've got drinks for you and they don't let you carry anything. And they're showing you animals, you know, right off the, right off this little, you know, uh, plane that we had taken in there. And it, I was like, wow, this is just over the top. They've got food laid out when we get there just for us. They're greeting us singing a little song oh my oh yeah they sing a little song welcoming us and you know some guys are on drums i mean it's just over the top you know so they're welcoming us so my friend he's like oh this is you know this is a really nice place so we go out on the back patio and we're watching these elephants that are just wandering through the back patio it was just this great experience and so a lady comes over and she says can i get you anything <laughs> and and so this is when this is when we learned you can take it too far so my, my friend said, he goes, oh, you know, what would be great. Just, you know, on the back patio here with my, with my scotch, uh, is just, you know, do you have any, you know, like human cigar or something like that? And she goes, well, yes, sir. And, uh, she, she comes back and, and it brings us our drinks, but we don't, we don't see her again. And then the next day she brings us the cigars and she brings okay. us like a box of cigars. And we're like, okay, well, that was, you know, it's day late, but okay. So we're checking out. <laughs> he comes over to me and he goes, dude, you owe me some money. I'm like, <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? He goes, you know, those cigars that they, I asked them for some cigars and they brought them to us. 
He goes, yeah. He goes, the box was $2,400. No. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, I asked him about it. He goes, they said, well, sir, we had to fly to Johannesburg to get it for what? you. What? <laughs> They flew and they went and got the cigar. They didn't ask a question. They're just like, yes, sir, whatever you want. He goes, so just from now on, be careful what you ask for around here because they'll get it for you. Yeah. And that's when you know you're at the highest end organization is when they don't tell you, sir, that will be $2,400. If you have to ask, you can't afford it. Yeah, you need to. Whew. Well, our, our guest today is an expert on customer experience and making it excellent. Dr. Joseph Michelli is an internationally sought after speaker, author, and organizational consultant who transfers his knowledge of exceptional business practices in ways that develop joyful and productive workplaces with a focus on the customer experience. His insights encourage leaders to grow and invest passionately in all aspects of their life. Dr. Michelli was a popular radio host back in the day. Now, He's a Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Publishers Weekly, Nielsen Bookscan, and New York Times number one bestselling author. We talked about some great topics, building resources as you make bold decisions, becoming genuinely interested in your customers, why personalization isn't the single solution for improving the client experience, what you want your business to be known for, empowering your employees, and then lastly, what your customers are seeking from you. So, if you're a business owner, business leader, you're wondering, how can I get 1% better on the customer experience? There is nobody more knowledgeable wise than Dr. Michelli. So stick around. You're going to learn something. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Hey, Joseph, glad to have you. Ah, good to be here, Sanger. Hey. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You Hi, know, Sean. Hey. Sometimes there's some weird oddities with uh, technology and social media, and uh, sometimes those oddities bring guests on our program, right? Like, we got connected because I was having <laughs> This a... is such a bad way to start, really, Sanger. <laughs> I just think story. it's funny. You know, the, the <laughs> somebody was impersonating you and I was having a whole conversation. I was like, oh, you I was, had a conversation yes. with, the, with the fraud person. Yeah. I didn't on Instagram. It's not your fault. I mean, it can happen to anybody. Yeah, sure it's not. I mean, it's just it's a great story. You know, you, you just promote fraudsters to represent <laughs> you, right. Joseph. And yeah, I we, had interactions <laughs> with them and now I want to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> how do we know you're the real you're Joseph right, right now? <laughs> I've got five of them in the other room ready to come in if this one doesn't work out for you. Uh. <laughs> well, see, now, since we, we saw Joseph at, at Barron's a few years ago. We, yeah, we a conference. Put a, put a name with a face now. We can. Uh, yeah, so Sanger and I were at, uh, I think it was a Barron, was it in Vegas? Yeah. Uh, oh, it's probably five, six years ago. And I think you you came and spoke to the group about yeah. um creating service experiences and, and, and things like that it was really, really yeah. impactful. I had a bunch of notes and stuff. So it was great. Just so we're happy to talk yeah. to you. So you've heard, yeah, you well, know, all I can say yeah. is I felt such a debt of gratitude to you Sanger. I mean, you were not only did you have that interaction, but you then notified me that you were dealing with a fraudster. I had no idea that there was somebody impersonating my entire profile on Instagram. And thanks to you, I was able to pull them down and, and subsequently they, sh you know, a different version of them showed up again. And so, 
It's a Weird. regular thing now for how? me to just check out to see how many of you me there are. Do you know who your enemy Instagram. is? No, but they're they're from some other land far, far away, mm-hmm. speaking uh, a different okay. language predominantly. So I'm, I'm not too, too worried. But um, anyway, no, I just really appreciated that kindness. I mean, it really was an act of kindness that said, hey, because you could have just left it at that and not reached out to me directly to try to help me become aware of it. So thank you. Well, hey, that's a good decision. I would call that a good decision <laughs> for this. It would not have occurred to me to stay silent. Right. I, I, I would have had to tell you. <laughs> Nobody's impersonating me. On, no, 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 there's not, the, no. not a lot to gain there. No, it's really not. <laughs> it's not all it's cracked up to be, really. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. Little do they know how, you know, how boring impersonating you, you would be. So, you know, how's, how's it like uh, being on the, on the other side of the microphone? You did, you did a lot of radio work for years and years before you got into this field. Uh, how long were you yeah, in radio? Yeah, it was in a time, it was in a time when radio was like the only medium for people to have conversations. Uh, radio's really taken a hit, talk radio, uh, oh, in man. light of what we're doing right now. Uh, yeah. So it's wonderful to be on this side. I, I like this a lot better, letting you guys have to carry the heavy load and I just sit here and take the softball questions. That's what I like. <laughs> That's right. Now, did you, did you find that you were able to open up back, you know, back then and in, in doing your show for years? Were you able to be as free in your thoughts and discussions, opinions as as maybe you are now, or maybe it's the reverse? Yeah, I have so many regrets about that. Let me tell you, it's a it's a font of regret. I did it for ten years, afternoon drive, Colorado Springs, Colorado, very conservative community, and I intentionally tried to foster dialogue. So I would take a moderate position on all issues, pretty much. You know, when the extreme left was saying something, I would moderate that with extreme right was saying something I'd moderate that. So I was hated by both sides fundamentally. Right. I mean, but, and it was, it was a time in talk radio where you needed to pick a side and, and I was playing the middle. And so the, the greatest part I have is that in the end, I think when I wrapped up my career, someone said he wasn't an ideologue. So to me, that was good. But in the meantime, people would refuse to sit with me at like a Japanese steakhouse, right? Oh, wow. oh, it's him from the radio and he's not conservative or liberal enough for me. So yeah, I, I was very eager to have dialogue, but I don't know that it was a safe place to really bury your soul. Yeah, yeah, that's one of those things that you, nobody praises you for until it's over. It's kind of like, um, you know, what's his name? The fullback for the Cowboys? Tony Dorsett? Okay. Yeah, it's like... Tailback. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. oh, he's really good at blocking. You don't hear about that until the Hall of Fame speech. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's yeah. kind of where I was. That was great at blocking. Yeah, yeah, I did like, nothing else well. Well, it's amazing that you would get criticism for being middle of the road, you know, that you that you weren't extreme enough. That's, yeah. that's an odd criticism. Yeah. yeah, it is an interesting criticism. I think this the whole notion of civility and civil dialogue and civil discourse. There's, there's something to be said for trying to teach us how to do that again, we may have polarized ourselves a smidge too much uh, in our echo chamber. So, yeah, I, and I think it was starting then. It was really starting then. Yeah, so there's a lot of regret. But my favorite thing was on Fridays, I had like Riddle Me Friday, and kids would call up, and they would have their riddles, and it was just so fun to engage them, and it was also really embarrassing to be so stupid so <laughs> consistently. So uh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll start that segment now. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> riddle Me Fridays. So how did you get in from doing radio hosting and doing a radio TV show into what you're doing now in helping businesses with, you know, with their customer experience and, you know, you're writing a book uh, every three and a half weeks, I think. 
uh, yeah. you know, and a good one every 20 years. No, no, I, think. I didn't uh, say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, great question. I mean, I, I started in radio when I was 13, I won a contest. And so I got involved in radio really early and I did radio in small town. And then I did it in, in Denver where I went to undergraduate. I certainly wasn't going to do it in Los Angeles. I just wasn't that good. And, uh, so didn't do it during graduate school when I went to USC and I came back out and I was working for business radio network as a person doing a program on kind of a wellness program on a business network. Um, and also had my local talk radio show. So there was always a desire to have, I think this is a lesson I've learned in life is try to create some confluence, right? I had a lot of things going in a lot of different directions. And so over time I was just trying to bring them together in some kind of unified stream. So I got to do business and radio, and that was probably my favorite part. Were you of able that to journey. combine the, the the psychology in the radio discussions, and did, was that what sort of moved you into working with businesses around that same area? Yeah, and it was at a time when like Tony Robbins would take a call and do my show. Nice. Right, so we were talking about the psychology of neurolinguistic programming, and yeah, so we brought that into the business radio network um, early in those days. What, what I is, feel like I'm. This is like yeah, back boy, in my taking, day, taking you down before the, uh, electricity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, tell me what I you know I saw that you were you did forensic psychology and I had no idea what that was. Yeah, psychology on dead people, right? That's the the thinking people have. No, it's it's anything pertaining to a legal issue. So it was the psychology in those days. It kind of started in. Not guilty by reason of insanity, incompetent to stand trial, mental health evaluations, child custody evaluations. Oh, okay. Okay. All of those kind of things. Yeah. Got it. That's where the confluence wasn't happening. I mean, like, why am I doing forensic psychology and business and radio? Yeah. Do, do you I find the diversity? Did you find you had to just sort of pick a path at some point? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's a desire to hedge. Like, you guys know this better than I do. I mean, you want to... You don't want to put all your sure. eggs in one basket, right? right? In a right. financial sense or yeah. you know, gifts and talents, whatever it was. And, but I was a little over leveraged out there in terms of just bring some of it together in you know a couple of baskets instead of 20 of them. So Yeah. Well, it sounds like completely unrelated to what you're doing now. But if you think about it for five seconds, it's absolutely interrelated, right? The, the client or the customer experience um, is deeply rooted in psychology and you know, I think one of the the downsides to the internet age is anybody can pretend to be an expert on anything. But yeah, I mean, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> I just tee them up, man. <laughs> I, and I didn't join in, yeah. which was really to cool. my Thank credit. Thank you, I appreciate that. That's unusual yeah. for me. So, when did you decide? Hey, I, I'm going to to f make my focus more on the customer customer experience and end of the this the spectrum so in graduate school i was studying systems psychology a clinical psychologist coming out doing forensic psychology and all that but really i was studying organizational systems and family systems so from a family systems perspective i was looking at how did you know your partner's background shape who they were how did your background shape who you were how did you bring it together and figure out how to negotiate uh, those two systems, if you will. Um, and so I, I carried that into business. I did that in graduate school. I worked with uh, Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle, Washington uh, on a project back in those days. And uh, from there, I, I had a foothold in business. 
And then the success of the fish market brought me kind of back into that. I was consulting for a healthcare system, working on organizational developmental issues, and the fish market became really popular through some training videos. Um, and so I got much more involved in kind of re-enlivening uh, what I would what I had dealt with in graduate school. And the the fish market, this is the famed Pikes Place fish market, right? That everybody who's ever been to Seattle has, has been there and probably caught a fish. Um, but it wasn't always like that, right? So what was the journey like for them to... Yeah, I mean, so you have to know the guy who's really centrally responsible. He didn't file, wasn't the founder, couldn't find the word there, wasn't the founder of the fish market, uh, but he took over early in its history and he was instrumental in transforming it. But his name is Johnny Yokoyama. He had been in internment camps uh, in his day. Um, as a kid, his father's business had been down there in the, in the Elliott Bay area, the Pike Lakes market area. And he had no business to come back to because of the internment. And so Johnny had to take a job and he started working at this fish market instead of his dad's previously existing produce business. Uh, and Johnny was bitter and angry and really negative, And he was having just a terrible business. And so he, he really focused on what do I need to do to change? I think the beginning of great decision-making is to kind of look at yourself and say, do an honest, objective evaluation of your skills and, and, and problems. And he did. And he really did a lot of work, including bringing in consultants to help him build a better experience. And lo and behold, it's an incredibly engaging, playful culture today. Johnny retired. And true to his long-term legacy statement that he wanted to make the world a more empowered place, unlike his childhood, where all the power seemed to be taken away and those barbed wire huts or the barbed wire fenced in tar paper hutted, you know, uh, internment camps. He really, he sold his business to his own team, even though he could have made far more from outside investors. So this is just, I mean, I think that it all started with Johnny really doing an honest self-evaluation and then living into a legacy of, of empowering people to do great things, including have great experiences at his fish market. And it's an amazing experience. Uh, I went there, oh, I don't know, several years ago, seven, eight years ago. I didn't know much about it as a business. All I knew is that I had heard about it because it's so famous, but I didn't know really why it was famous. Like, well, I'm here. Dad's birthday's next week. I got to get him some salmon because he likes salmon. So I go in there. I've got no idea what to expect. And the guys working the market reacted as if they just opened that morning and I was their first customer ever. Like, I'm the first guy to ever buy a fish, but in a good way, right? Not in a, oh, we don't know what to do. In a, oh my gosh, <laughs> this guy's buying a fish, a whole fish. And everyone's shouting and they're excited and they're like, dude, get up on stage. Do you want to catch the fish while we throw it to you? I'm like, what? Catch the fish? I don't know. It was a whole hoopla. They're hollering at, you know, passersby saying hey come watch this guy just bought a fish it was so over the top but you know a once in a lifetime experience and they well, i think what they're selling though i mean they're selling yeah. a fish morgue this is the most dead thing you can ever sell right <laughs> on ice <laughs> stiff yeah right so how do you enliven that product and if they can make a fish morgue into an exciting experience it speaks to any product can be elevated by the way we approach its delivery. So there you go. So, you know, it's really fascinating when they when they get to that point where they decide, I'm going to bring in somebody to help me. I, th I think that's self-reflective when you look at business decisions. And I, I think you said it sort of being self-aware. In your opinion, how do you define a good decision? 
Well, I, I, I mean, it's often in the retrospect, right? I mean, <laughs> that it led you in in a direction that is kind of transformational. And for me, it's just going from one state of being to the next state of being more enlightened, you know, more capable, whatever that next state step is. But bad decisions are the ones that I think weigh me down, make it harder for me to move, you know, kind of cause me to reverse the jets and do destructive things. So that's, so, so for me, for Johnny at that point in time, I think he really got constructive, right. Mm -hmm. uh, and put some energy behind it. Did you work with uh, other companies in that area when you were up there? Oh, uh, yeah. There's a guy by the name of Howard Schultz in Starbucks that kind of pulled me in. You know, it's interesting. If you go to that same fish market and you go to the first Starbucks store, which is only about two and a half blocks down the street on the same street, um, they throw cups. So whereas oh, Johnny right? threw fish, they throw cups. Now, part of it is the structural design of the store. It's not laid out really well, but they are emulating the behavior of that little fish market. Em so if empty, you think about the empty, first, I hope, right? Yeah, empty cups. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, and that was the, that's the <laughs> on a good day. That's the original Starbucks, right? Yep. Yeah, right there. So in the market, and was throwing cups a part of their? Was that a like from day one thing that they did? No, it was an homage. Well, first from day one, it wasn't. Uh, they weren't serving brew, serving brewed coffee at day one. The original founders of that Starbucks were creating business to business higher end coffee, right? And they sold, you know, other teas out of there as well. And Howard Schultz was the one who came there, uh, kind of a Ray Kroc story, you know, where he was selling the the products into um, the McDonald's brothers business. Well, Howard was selling some bean grinders, uh, coffee bean grinders. And that particular store was using a lot of them, same kind of scenario as the Kroc story. Um, and Howard, studied them and ultimately convinced them to let him be their marketing director. And then from there, he convinced them to sell espresso coffee, which was crazy because at that time, more people owned private jets than espresso machines in America. Um, but he, he was able to be quite successful with that. Not success, maybe too successful because it started to get in the way of them being able to sell the whole bean coffee. So they wanted to shut down his espresso line. And that's when he opened uh, up a Starbucks nearby, if you will, and came back in and bought the company. Wow. So it, it's fascinating to juxtapose these two businesses because aside from the throwing of the cups in that original Starbucks, it's just, you know, a stone's throw away from Pike Place fish market is there's one business, which is the fish market that has this extravagant experience i mean it's it's a very memorable experience you know i remember buying that fish as if it was yesterday i'm not going to remember that one time i went to starbucks right starbucks is going to happen a lot more frequently at least you know that's what they hope um but they still have excelled at creating a magnificent customer experience in a in a you know more muted way how does a company decide which pathway to go down in creating those excellent, memorable customer experiences? So Howard's goal early on was to make it down to Portland, Oregon, two hours south with a regional distributed product, right? So he wanted to open up replicated stores. So he needed to come up with a replicable model. Um, whereas Johnny was always just about being the most amazing fish market in the world and to becoming world famous pike place fish. Uh, and so there was an aspirational difference, I think. And with that different vision for your future, 
come some different tactics and strategies to execute against it. Um, so I think that's part of it. Both of them, I think, focused on high quality product. They then looked at how do we create a product that emotionally connects with its audience. And the audience at the fish market tends to be a little more touristy and a little more uh, more in need of entertainment and stimulation that way. Uh, the Starbucks audience was more about creating a living room for the community, uh, a place where people would go when it was too formal to meet at their offices and too informal to meet at their homes. So I think those different defined experiential throughputs help you build what then becomes uh, in keeping with your aspiration. You know, it's, it seems like a lot of these decisions, you know, and we, we talk about making Starbucks the sort of the third place. We talk about taking fight, Pike's fish market and throwing fish and making it the best fish place in the world. A lot of these, you're sort of swimming upstream to go with the salmon analogy there. Mm. Uh, on the decisions, you're, you're doing something bold. Have you seen companies that said, hey, you know, I know here's a bold thing we can do. Here's a bold decision we could do that just kind of fell on its face. It did not did not work. Oh, my goodness. Yes. A history is littered with that. I mean, part of good decision making is making yourself gulp, but not making yourself laugh. I mean, you know, it, it shouldn't be preposterous what you're trying to do. I mean, it defies gravity in some way. It should make you gulp though. And then you need to start building your resources one step at a time to see how far you can get in approximation of that end goal. And you sometimes have to change your, your goals and aspirations or you know, move them in a slightly different direction because another opportunity sheets out. But sometimes I think brands just get crazy. And particularly in the internet age, when people just think they're going to become famous just because they're them, right? I mean- if everybody wants to be famous, it's pretty hard to, to get the attention. And so what the Pike Place Fish Market did, for example, was to take a world-famous interest in the people they served instead of saying, look at us. The reason it works, Sanger, is because it was you who was the celebrity at the center of the stage, who got pulled into the drama, who had other people were videotaping and wanting it to be them. Yeah. And if you take a big enough interest in people, you become a heck of a lot more interesting to them. Yeah, I think that's a, a great lesson that can apply to almost every business is if you focus more on the customer and genu genuinely be interested, which these guys seemed like they were genuinely happy for me that I was going to buy this fish. You know, it, it wasn't like a, it didn't feel like an act, which was what was one of the more amazing parts about it. It's like they really loved being able to sell it to me. Um, they spend a lot of time on their intentions every day and being fully present. I mean, they're being present is so much a part of who they are there uh, that they were. They were present and present in the excitement about the fact that you were buying something special for somebody special. Yeah. The the lesson, I think, that you answered the question a couple of minutes ago, hey, what, how do these companies end up in two totally different places? And you said, hey, it's the vision. That is, I'm almost constantly reminded how important a vision is. And it seems obvious, right? Like, yeah, you, you got to, you got to have a vision. That's the role that you have with the company you start, you run, create a vision and then guide your employees to it. But I think it's so easy to miss it. So easy to overlook it because you're not talking about this general idea of, Hey, we want to grow. You're talking very specifically, not only do we want to improve quality and have a good customer experience, but we want to go up market, but here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do it through expanding and going to other stores, or we're expressly not going to do that. Like the fish market, we're going to grow 
our impact in this one location. And I, I think a lot of business owners miss that. And so then they're swayed in the future, the further away they get from that vision mapping conversation when they were all excited and they wrote things on the whiteboard, they get further into the weeds and they get pulled by ideas that don't keep them on one original path because Starbucks could have said, okay, let's, you know, celebrate people when they get their coffee, kind of like they do down the street when they buy a fish. And, and that might not have been replicable. It might not have might not have been very easy to to expand and open up new stores. It, it it could have really made it something that didn't become the biggest coffee company in the world. I can tell you that one of the things that happens to me in my life as an entrepreneur is I'll go to mastermind groups. And there are times when I go to mastermind groups and it just screws me up. I mean, it like is a complete confusion because rather than me saying, where's my vision? I'm just reacting to every cool new idea that comes popping mm -hmm. into my sphere of yeah. influence, right? So like, oh, that guy's doing AI. Well, let's let's go do AI. Like, is that in my strategic plan? How does that fit my model? Oh, they're going to start selling product in the back of the room. Well, I'm not, my, my strategy has nothing to do with selling product in the back of the room. Uh, so, and I don't want to schlep things all over the place, uh, but I can get pulled into that. And so I think sometimes the fear of missing out is a big part of why we don't make good decisions. I mean, missing out of our life or someone else's life is what I have to start really figuring out. Yeah. And the social, the, like the implicit social pressure of, Hey, this friend, someone who, whose opinion you obviously value if you're in this mastermind group and, and their peer that you respect to some degree, oh, they're doing something. Well, it's God, gee, it's like, it's, it's, it's got to be a pretty good idea. I mean, come on, Mark's doing it, right? Mark, Mark's a smart guy running a good business. I like him. And there's that implicit pressure of, oh, maybe I should be doing this too. And that, that goes from big business ideas to, you know, personal finance ideas of, well, you know, my buddy told me that he's, he's buying these stocks or whatever the heck it is. And, and there's this pull of, even if I don't even fully understand it, even if it's not part of my, my specific plan, I'm kind of interested now because this person told me they were doing it. Um, and I think that's part of that, to, to that point of good decisions, bad decisions. You know, we know inherently that we are socially comparative animals, right? Like as human beings, we compare ourselves to others. The question is, who are you comparing yourself to? And how do you know that what you're comparing yourself to is better than what you already have, as opposed to assuming it to be so? And there's a lot in there, I think, of trying to slow down ground yourself again, have a predetermined vision that you look at and compare these new, these new data points to, is this taking me in that direction or is it just distracting me and creating a whole new area that I feel incompetent in? You know, I had a business coach one time that, that told me, he said, you know, as you become more successful, what will happen is more opportunities will come your way. Uh, you'll go to conferences, you'll hear a thousand good ideas, you'll want to implement a bunch of things. And he says, the skill you have to develop in terms of making better decisions moving forward is learning to say no, is learning to not act on those opportunities that may seem like a good idea, but are fundamentally misaligned with your with your vision, you know, with your uh, core. Did you pay him more? Yeah, I should have. Like, yeah. That was worth that was worth the price of admission that day. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I couldn't agree more. I actually uh, wrote a draft of a Harvard Bus Business Review article, never ended up getting you know published with the 
the vice president of quality over at the Ritz Carlton, and, and it was called the price of excellence. And the whole the whole thought behind it is that you have to say no to things you'll be mediocre at if you really want to be excellent, right? So, um, yeah, I think there's that wisdom of saying no is a powerful position to be in. Yeah, I ha- I had a uh, a guy I worked with. He called it choosing to fail. He goes, we're we're gonna select, we're gonna choose to fail at that, you know, not just fail at it. We're gonna choose. I to like fail. that. That's really good. <laughs> so, we're gonna intentionally fail at that, as opposed to accidentally fail right. at it. Kids, you got to choose before that happens. Right. You can't <laughs> say it in hindsight. Yeah. You can't say I chose to fail <laughs> at that. Yeah. That doesn't work. It's like that. Yes. That guy I was telling you said, I I never wanted to be rich. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> when did you When did you come up with that one? <laughs> I didn't want to hurt the go deepest out with me part anyway. of my yeah. poverty. <laughs> As I sit here in my poor state, I've considered I never wanted yeah. to. Be. Yeah, it's just sour great. Wait until your mid fifties yeah. to figure that one out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you, when you yeah. go in and work with a company, you know, whether it's Ritz Carlton or you know whoever, uh, where do you start when you begin to work with them? Where do you start that decision making process or that enhancement of customer service process? How far yeah. back do you go? It's funny because I'm talking to financial guys. And so I used to say, well, I'm going to come in and do a customer experience audit. The word audit is not a really good word. <laughs> Everybody's just, butt tightens I up. Just really strongly <laughs> suggest not doing that. Wait, I do a diagnostic, uh, a kind of evaluation of where they are and looking at the core components of you know world-class companies. So whether that's in their CX culture, their ability to listen to customers and leverage what they hear, uh, their ability to select for customer experience talent or trained to it. Um, normally it really is an exhaustive list with their governance policies around green lighting or red lighting, different CX projects, whether that I have a good roadmap for that. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things that I go in and do. Most of the time I I'm able to do that and companies are patient enough for us to assess it before we go. Occasionally a patient, uh, patient, interesting, the diagnostic really got in my head. Apparently. Uh, <laughs> The occasionally a client will come in and they'll say, we are just hemorrhaging in this way. And so we need something to happen immediately. And in those cases, we will frequently hit the ground running, try to patch that up and then still encouraging to look for the root causes behind it that so it doesn't pop back well, up well, again. I guess my, my question is, I have seen advisors or business owners or whoever looking at saying, I want to change my customer experience. So I'm going to start sending, you know, I'm going to make something. I'm going to send flowers after they buy whatever. Um, Without really ever exploring, does that customer want flowers? Is that going to move the needle even, right? Yeah, well, that happens a lot. Like doing something we think is better than doing nothing, but not always. You know, I got so many I mean, my my wife died of breast cancer, oh, 10 years, 12 years ago. It was amazing how many people reached out in a totally inappropriate way. Like just, they didn't know Nora, they didn't know me and whatever their business-like efforts to show condolences, you know, misspell my wife's name, you know, those kind of things. Um, So I just, I think you have to be very intentional about how you do it. So in the advisor space, I worked with Janice um, Henderson uh, back when they were just Janice and I was part of the Janice Labs team. I consulted with them and so Janice, you know, for those of you who don't have the long history, I mean, they had some problems. They were direct to, to investor um, as their primary model. They had at one point in time in the, those good old days, they had people lining up to, you know, 
throw money at them, investors. And then there's some market timing issues that kind of came up for a bit, if I remember the history. All in all, they changed their model and they wanted to go through an advisor-distributed approach. They wanted advisors to give them the time of day when they had treated advisors for the longest time like they were irrelevant, right? So they had a huge problem getting their intermediary to even give them the time of day. So we focused on several things, how to help advisors have energy and longevity, but also we focused in the Janus Labs program on how do we help advisors retain their customers, right? Their clients, particularly high net worth clients. And so we started to look at how do you segment your book of business? How do you create a a personalized offering for the highest part of your book where you knew them inside out, you knew they were going to be playing you know, uh, at TPC and you were going to be able to get a sleeve of golf balls right You know, when they needed them. It was that sort of like amazing, how did they know sort of level of personalization. And then we looked down at your kind of mid book of business and we said, let's Let's create some generic offerings, you know, for your accountants. Let's make sure you have a, a relief package that you send them on a, on tax day, you know, or the day after tax day, just to show them as a group that you've created a, a special offering for them. And then we went down to the lower book of business and we're still trying to elevate it. You know, if you knew there was going to be a rate increase on stamps, we're going to send you a, a bunch of, you know, two cent stamps to make up the difference or whatever it was. So my point is that I think in order to run a, a, a scalable solution, you have to decide, are we personalizing, customizing, or doing some generic elevation? And then once you do that, you have to really make sure you nail personalization. So you would say sort of defining or start with defining which who, category yeah. of, of, of experience increase you're, you're looking for. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What can seems, you leverage? What can you operationally deliver, right? I think the idea of, of personalization, personalization uh, and pushing it so hard is like very appealing and a lot of business owners fall for that and try to do too much because they hear people say, well, the be- like, obviously the best thing to do is personalize the, the experience for everyone. Well, practically, that's not the best thing to do. But like, yeah, if you had a magic wand, everybody that you interact with them to have a personal wow moment every day. Right. <laughs> but you can't do a personal wow moment every day. Um and so I see a lot of businesses start with personalization instead of starting generic. You could start generic and still it, it can still feel intimate and personal and make people happy. Obviously, there are some ways you could do um, a g- generic gift that feels generic, you know, <laughs> like, you know, misspelling, you really make it worse. Yeah. <laughs> misspelling the name is one, yeah. you know, stuff yeah. like that. Um Right. That's one with people. Uh, a lot of times will give me stuff. I can tell that, yeah, I'm just on a list because they'll say Mr. Sanger. You know, they, they think it's my last name, I guess. Like, you, ah. you ever get the letters that say client name in brackets? I've never had that. Oh, my God. I got one just last week. Oh, that's it was a letter to me. And it said client name where my name was supposed to go. It just said client. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I thought that was really nice. <laughs> um, so people. I, that's my opinion. Um, what do you think the the biggest mistakes that companies are making when they attempt to improve the, the customer experience? It starts with a very fundamental thing. is what you want people to experience when they walk in the door of your office or show up at your website or call the phone is different than hopefully what some other financial advisor down the street wants people to feel. 
And if you know what you want your people to feel and you're really clear about that and your team understands that they're going to feel respected, like this is going to be the respected place or the appreciated place or the cared for, cared about, whatever it is, right? Once you know that, then you have that as your true north. And you you kind of like, I liken it to manufacturing, right? If we if we were trying to manufacture something, we'd have raw material that's 99% consistent coming in the door. We'd impose consistent processes and we'd have a defect of a 0. 0.0001, right? Like, and we would call that successful. In the world we live in, we have this raw material called human beings who come in so diverse, but we have to run a business. So we have to have some repeatable processes we impose in the hopes that we'll deliver certain kinds of outcomes, some of which are practical, like financial success, or others of which are emotional, like trust. So the goal is to have a repeatable process, but have your people understand what success looks like. For us, it means a person walks out feeling this and are likely to say that when asked by a friend or a colleague or on social media. And so my goal is always to say, what do you want to be known for? And what do you want people to feel every single time? And you can't say everything and you can't have puppy dogs and roses and and you know, it's got to be one lane and then how, prove it to me. Like if you go to that Pike Place fish market, you will be known for this wacky, engaging culture. They're not trying to be reverent, right? I mean, it, it, they're not trying to treat you with such dignity and gravitas, right? That's Ritz Carlton. Um, so starting there, I think, is the biggest mistake and not knowing what it is. And if I went to your team and said, what do you want every single person to feel every single time? If they're not all aligned, you got some work to do. Yeah, that's great. You know, be be as precise as you can about your intention, just like everything else in business. You know, you, you're going to come up with a, a sales strategy to improve revenue. We need to be really, really explicit about why and and what type of what type of sales growth you you're talking about. Are you talking about numbers? Are you talking about improving or increasing your high ticket items what do you mean uh, you said the true north which stood out to me because i heard you say that first five years ago when we saw you at barons it's like that i pointed this out more to compliment you than anything because first of all how often do you even really remember people's names when you hear them at conferences five years ago not often but i remember even you what you said and that has stuck with me for so long the true north the comment. true north comment is, <laughs> that's the most flattering way of saying, man, you repeat yourself for five no, straight no. years. Hey, no, you come no, up no, with some no. original it's, new material, Michelle. <laughs> no, it's like because because you know why <laughs> imitators, because you never say anything new. <laughs> that's a one trick pony. Oh, why <laughs> exactly. Here, here's why. Is because it sounds so simple, right? It's like, oh well, duh. And and when I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, okay, got it. And um that's something that I have to constantly remind myself. And even hearing you say it, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, we're missing that. We're here's I'm missing that in my business. Not quite there. So this is uh, driven to delight. You know, the, the true North for Mercedes became delight, right? Now, this to me is absolute absurdity. But at some level, we ended up stopping asking people how satisfied were you with your experience at Mercedes? And we start asking them to what degree, zero to 10, were you delighted? today as a result of your experience. Talk about chutzpah. Like some of the early numbers were like zero. I'm not only not delighted. I feel like you guys treated me like I should be, you know, I should be honored to be spending $140,000 on my S class, you <laughs> fool, right? Yeah. Like it was not nice, some yeah. of the feedback. 
But the aspiration became very clear. What does delight mean and how do we get there? We listen, we empathize, we add value, and then we push the envelope with just a little bit more. And that listen, empathize, add value, and delight was our lead model. And we kept everything heading to drive delight. So enough of that. It was not a plug for the book. It's just an intention to say true north is delight. It's not satisfaction. And what I what I learned from that, Joseph, is that even when you find the why, even when you find the true north, it's not as clear as it could be. Like you can keep digging deeper because, okay, hey, we're Mercedes. We found delight. It's delight. Okay. And what an amateur does or, or what someone who who doesn't meet the level of success that they hope for and dream for, they go, oh, delight. And they're yeah. done. And then three, I got something to put on my business plan. Yeah. I got something to write on the board. I got something to tell <laughs> the employees. I got, yeah, okay, yeah. check next. Yeah. And then three years later, they go, oh, I thought we, you know, shouldn't we have grown by much more by now? Shouldn't we be doing much better? Shouldn't our client satisfaction be a lot higher? They go, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're shooting for delight, <laughs> but they didn't yeah. define it. They didn't extrapolate on it. They didn't dig deep and on they're, it. And they're not dro- drilling down on it. They're just oftentimes switching horses, right? So one of the great things about being a business book author is you love those people because they're waiting for the next thing. Oh, this is the carrot principle. Oh, it's the power of why. Oh, it's what? It, what's the next trick that I can use as a proxy for really sustaining a focus on how do I want people to feel every single time they interact with me? Uh, and how do I execute against that and get a team of people who believe in that and who want to lead the world a better place because they did it, right? Johnny Yokoyama at the Pike Place Fish Market has made the world a better place because they consistently delighted in their way um, the people who come down there, including you, Sanger. They made a moment, a memory for you. What's better? I mean, make people money, make them successful. Whatever you do, do it well. But on top of that, make sure that they were emotionally moved by what you did. Yeah, you, you know, it's surprising to me often how many businesses don't, it's not that they don't do that well, they don't do it. They don't, they don't, I, I was doing some coaching for a, a, a company a few years ago, and this was a company that brought people into their office. And so I get up, you know, I go up to the fourth floor and I, ding, the elevator opens and I turn to their office and it's these big solid wooden doors. Not, not glass doors. They're big. There's no window. They're not, you know, so I'm like, oh, okay. That's a little strange. But, so I open it up and it's this dark, narrow lobby. And the, the narrow lobby you're supposed to sit over and it was really dark over in this far corner. And then the receptionist was behind a wall that had a little window and the window was closed. Oh, we're, and, we're at the DMV. And on, and, <laughs> and on the table in the, in the lobby... They had industry magazines for their industry, you know, the kind of things that would say what to do if your client sues you, you know, that kind of saying, oh, you know, God. how to, you know, it, it was, it was horrible. So are I, you sure you weren't on some like television episode where they're like totally jerking with you? Oh yeah. You know? I pulled the guy aside as a dude. You, what are you Handed doing camera here? of yeah. the day. What yeah. are you doing here? <laughs> oh, that's tough. But, yeah. So, you know, clearly there, there's some people who don't even think about, what are they trying to accomplish? And, you know, there's, there's another uh, client that I work with and I'm continually asking them anytime they're doing an initiative, what do you want this person who's receiving this? What do you want them thinking, feeling, and doing? If they're doing a presentation, if they're sending a gift, they're creating something, 
what do you want your clients thinking, feeling, and doing when they, when they experience this? And I, I think when, you know, one of the things that you talk about in the, in the, in your book, new gold standard was about empowering the employees to, to have some autonomy to be able to interact with customers. How did, how do people make good decisions when they've given so much freedom? Aren't some of the businesses concerned, Hey, if I give these people too much freedom, how do I coach them to make good decisions on how to deal with that autonomy? Yeah. I find this always, these are such a great questions, right? Because first you have to hire the right people. That's always kind of the key. And so I think a lot of people don't do behavioral interviewing and don't really put people in situations where you really see how they might act. And then you, you have them in and if you get the wrong people in, you have to be able to let them go quickly and encourage them to work with some other place that's a better fit for them. And lots of people hang on to people too long after they've made a bad choice. And then once you've found a good person, you have to really help them be their most amazing, right? So if they have the talent, they have the service talent, then you have to be able to guide them and coach them and nurture them. And it certainly isn't a hands-off delegation, isn't the abdication of you know being there for people. It really is. And it's also not just a task list of mundane stuff. Delegation is an active, cool process wherein you're watching their magnificence and their ideas that you'd never even begin to think about because they're not you, but you're also shaping them so that's more of this and less of that. Because without those guardrails, if there's not freedom within boundaries, it's a free for all, right? So, so for me, it's figuring out how to help people have boundaries. This is the way we roll here at the extremes and in between there, make us roll faster and better. One thing that is a challenge in cultivating a, a client or a customer experience as a business owner that I've found is that it's so easy to notice the bad examples, right? I mean, all three of us have a dozen bad examples of, oh, I went to this restaurant or I went to this office and, and this is how horrible it was. And that's always my fear is like that. Sometimes it's because the business is poorly run. The management's terrible. The employee has a bad attitude. Their business model stinks. Everything top to bottom is awful. Sometimes it's one person making one mistake with good intentions and it just didn't go well. And, and I have that fear in my business because I'll hear something maybe, you know, it's obviously it doesn't happen a lot, but in the past I've heard, Hey, oh, we did this. And I go, Ooh, Oh, it could have been better. Oh, it could have been better. Oh, we could have done this, done this um, in an improved way. And the thing that I've personally found the most challenging is that, like, I try to f- try to give my team so m- I trust them more than anybody. That's why they're my team. I think I'm the best team in my industry. Still, it's like I- I'm trying to coach them on how to think like I think, and that's not always going to like. The way they see a, a a great customer experience moment is it's not necessarily going to be what I think. Um, the way they problem solve is not going to be how I think or how I problem solve. But I keep trying and keep going and saying, hey, I'm going to give you more trust, give you more autonomy, give you more autonomy. And the biggest challenge for me is like I'm having to undo decisions that I or mistakes that I made in the past where I didn't give them that trust or I didn't give them that autonomy. Or maybe I micromanaged a little too much. And so undoing that is a huge challenge um, because I can, you can go to your team 
and say, hey, for the last 10 years, I know you didn't really have any autonomy in your role. I was basically telling you everything to do all the time and you were just, you know, executing orders like a good soldier. But now I want you to run the budget of our, you know, client gifting experience or whatever the heck it is. And it's not going to be overnight like that. Yeah. I, you know, I think decentralizing decision-making is the future of everything. I mean, I think decentralization is what is happening in the planet. And so the challenge is how do we get there? And it is a journey. It's like your kids growing up and getting trust to drive the car, right? And when things go wrong, you're not going to keep them from ever driving the car again. You know, you're going to have to reestablish that trust. There's a, there's a marriage of competency and letting go. And I think these are brokered agreements, right? And there are behavioral contracting that goes on on this. And sometimes the contract is I've demonstrated the competency and you didn't give me the keys, right? Like it's an accountability from the front line to you. Um, and just having the dialogue means you're open to exploring that tension. Geez, Sanger, I have no doubt that you are right where you need to be and any slight tweaks are constantly happening and course realignment is happening. Um, so I'm not too worried about you, despite the fact you made it sound pretty catastrophic there for a moment. Well, <laughs> if that's how I made it seem, I don't want it to sound that way at all. <laughs> they do, everybody. Like, I was no. like, oh, I had them all in boxes. And then no. one day I opened all the boxes and I said, you're going to rule the universe. <laughs> Hope you're ready. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the, what it kind of sounds people, like. Hey, can I just say something about sure. all this? Kind of just totally unrelated. Yeah. I know you probably have questions, but from the moment, just to give you my feel of this, from the moment that I interacted with you, beyond your kindness of saving my myself from an impersonator, but Morgan, your producer, the way you start with pure joy, your brother dynamic in a real playful way, the willingness to to take some humor on yourself not taking yourself too seriously while still trying to impart meaningful information to your audience. These are the memorable experiences that people will take with them. As a guest, I will take this experience with me. Hopefully your listeners are finding some value in what I just you know, encapsulated. But I really do think that's how you connect with people emotionally. You don't, you're not plastic. You're not perfect. You know, People are looking to deal with humans who make mistakes and own that, who grow and change. And see your potential and empower you more. That's that's the, the journey we're all on. That's a huge compliment yeah, for thanks. us. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, yeah especially coming from you. And we're breaking the fourth wall a little bit, talking, uh, getting super meta, talking about the podcast on the podcast. But I'm going to go with it because <laughs> the you know we we do spend we spend a lot of time and energy on that. On uh, and and what we decided to do is to say, hey for for the we want our guests we want you we want joseph to have a great customer or a great not customer but great experience you know they're doing a great thing for us being on the show we want it to be really positive and so i'll tell you what will happen if you ask me for my favorite guests that i know are favorite leaders because i had a positive experience i will actually tell you now i will give you those names what often happens is somebody will come out and i've just had a terrible experience as a guest i'll never admit this but and then they'll say, hey, you know, do you have any other guests you would, you know, any of your friends you'd like for me to torture <laughs> of equal level? <laughs> oh, let me break out my book. Who do I send? Yeah, let I me send embarrass people? myself in my social yeah. circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me think of who I've got a vendetta with and I will send those names over immediately after the podcast. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> so you, you've done books on some of the biggest names out there. You know, you mentioned Mercedes. We've talked about Starbucks. We've talked about. Ritz Carlton, 
who are you who are you working on now? I'm sure you got something in the hopper. Yeah, I've got something. I I, I I'm gonna the book will release in Australia. It's an Australian business to business brand. So we're releasing Australia in October. And I'm doing zero marketing on it because it's all being marketed down in Australia in their neighborhood. And then McGraw-Hill is going to release it in January. So I will tell you all about it when you invite me back sometime. But uh, it's the key here is the business-to-business brand. So we don't see a lot of business books about that, right? It's almost always business-to-consumer. It's in the technology and telecom sector. So imagine having a book about a telecom in you know that that is serving business clients in ways that create net promoter scores that are in the 90s i mean it just is unheard of so and they read the new gold standard years ago they hired me as a consultant and so i felt i just needed to tell their story i'm not expecting over the top sales from it because it doesn't have the name brand gravitas of one of these where people pick it up even if just because they own a car uh but i do think the book is going to have some really interesting insights. It, it seems like it would be more challenging in business to business because there's going to be limited, more limited interaction than a company like a, a Starbucks or a Ritz Carlton, for example. But it's stickier too. And so often in the business to business space, we take for granted because who's going to change their, you know, if I'm a corporate client of yours, do I really want to change my financial advisor? Do I fi- change my bank? Do I want to change my telecom? There's so many so much pain to doing that. And so, so they don't let that, they don't have that built in. Hey, we got them anyway. That's did, did you find that there were a lot of those concepts that when dealing with, you know, in the retail customer space, like a, I'm going to use Starbucks because that's well known that were the same and just carried forward to business to business. Or did you find that there's some that were just really needed to be altered? There's some that are just need to be altered, but I think the cool part that any good business to business thinks about that business they're serving their customers. So if I if you think about it, let's really get into the alphabet soup, right? B to B to C, right? Like from business to business to their customer. And the really good ones are not only trying to help the middle B, who's ostensibly their client, but they're also thinking about their client's customer. And how do we make the life of our customer better so their clients have a better experience. That's a, and how do we just make them successful, right? That's the key to business. It's like, how do I make sure you get what you need and you're able to live the dreams that you're trying to create? And I'm not dragging anything along. Yeah, that, that, the challenge there seems like that this is necessarily going to require more personalization um, for the B2B client, right? Not necessarily personalizing it for every end client. But you are personalizing it for your own clients if you're a B2B business. Yeah. You really need to know the drivers for their success, their pain points. You need to do your journey mapping just like you do in the customer and consumer space. Um, it's complicated. And I think that's why we sometimes just throw up our hands and say, oh, it's so different. We don't really can't do that. We shouldn't care about it. They're business owners. They understand that it's hard. So, you know, why should we deliver extraordinary experiences to them? they understand it's a business. Yeah. And, and I think, um, in my own business, you know, the, the B2B relationships that, that we have, you know, the not, it's not necessarily a conscious thought, but the people we choose to do business with, um, they're very attuned to, to not only the, their, the experience I have in working with them, but my client's experience, you know, they want to know more. They want to dig into it. They want to, 
they want to find ways to help. And and sometimes they don't even they don't even necessarily know how to help, but they just go, hey, like I want to let you know we can offer this. I don't even know if it would be of interest to your clients, but we're happy to do it. Yeah, I, I think it's trying to anticipate as best you can understand the needs of their clients, right? Uh, so, uh, it, but but this is just a different book. I mean, I'm, I got to tell you, writing a book about an Australian company, we in the you know the United States think everything starts here and ends here. Um, so, trying to get people to pay attention to things that aren't on their radar, um, because you don't have to be big to be great. You know, the Pike Place Fish Market is a pretty good example of that. One thousand four hundred square feet of retail space that I think kicks. Um, and so I'm telling a story about an Australian company, I think kicks as well. Oh, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. I got one final question for you. All right. So what is your advice or tip to help people make better decisions? Oh, I think for me, I, I'm a kind of a prayerful person. So I can't, I make a, I, I try to tell people I need some time to think this over because my impulsive decision isn't always my best decision. I do need time. So I have to kind of get in a prayerfully meditative, contemplative state and really run through the pros and cons, the unintended consequences of each decision. Um, and then I tend to go to my, in the Jim Collins sense, my board of directors of life, if it's a big decision and I ask the people that I've already, I trust their decision-making, right? And I get their inputs and they're not always the same but they caused me to think about nuances of the way I'm going to approach it differently. Like for me right now, it's kind of, I'm going to retire someday. Right. And figuring out how to do that retirement so that I am still significant. Uh, but I also am not chasing a dream of a 30 year old. So, you know, I've got, I'm going through all kinds of contemplations on that. Well, right maybe now. we can all three have a discussion about that offline. <laughs> 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 Sounds like exactly the type of thing we do. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for being here, Dr. Michelle. This was great. We really appreciate hey, you it. You know, Sanger, what I didn't say was thanks for impersonating me so you had an excuse to act <laughs> as though that would have been you the were move. the hero. That, that been was the, the hero. Yeah. No doubt to this day, I've got the IP address to I'm prove doing, Sanger not, was the original impersonator. I'm impersonating so Elon Musk right now. It <laughs> <laughs> hasn't worked. Of all the people, what do you think that. about yeah. that? Yeah. Right. Hey, thanks very much for your kindness and for the incredible experience. Yeah, where can people find the work that you're doing and connect with you? Oh, I just find my name. It's probably in the show notes, I guess. My name, I'm mercilessly known by my name. Twitter is josephmajali.com, on and on and on. So if you uh, have my name, you can find me. Nothing to sell or pitch. Awesome. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. My takeaway from talking with him was when we were talking about making a change and deciding to implement a change in your life or in your business that was significant. And he made the comment that I, I wrote down. He said, those types of decisions should make you gulp. Yeah. They, they, it should yeah, be big enough. Me. Yeah. It should be big enough that it, that it's significant and makes you gulp. And I thought that was really important. I love that as well. My biggest takeaway from my conversation or from our conversation with Dr. Michelli was that delegation isn't handing off of tasks. It's an engaged hands-on often collaborative process. I think a lot of people struggle with delegating because they struggle with that. They struggle with the engagement part. They would prefer to simply tell their employees what to do. But if you spend that time, it'll pay off. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. 
Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.